The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. All right, let's get into the word, hey? I am going to read our passage for this morning, which is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of, of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Awesome. Yeah, if you've got these little uh, booklets with you, keep them open uh, or open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Um, We're going to be spending, this is the the first of a eight-week series for both LCC Caloundra and LCC Northlakes, and we're going to be spending uh, this next eight weeks walking through this really, really wonderful and warm uh, little letter. 2 Timothy is most likely Paul's final letter or at least the last letter that we actually have of his in our possession. Uh, aside from Jesus Christ, there might not be anybody, earth, anybody else in history who has been more influential than the Apostle Paul. And so when we're taking a look at what actually might be his last words, uh, we should pay attention to these words. These are very, very important words to examine. Now, I find the the background or the the context of this particular book both tragic and beautiful. It's tragic because uh, Paul is in prison. He's in prison because of serving Jesus Christ, because of declaring the gospel. He's pretty sure that this is actually going to be the end of his life, that, that his death is just around the corner. But when we read through this letter, we'll see that actually uh, prison and death don't seem to be the things that are really bothering him. In fact, when Paul talks about being in prison, he celebrates, he rejoices, and he says, at least the word of God is not bound. It's not his imprisonment that seems to be causing Paul the most pain. It's that he's been deserted by his friends. Some people have left him. They might have had a good reason to it, but others have left him for other reasons. Some have deserted Paul because of their love for the world, he'll say later on. Some have deserted him simply because they're ashamed of him. They're ashamed of the fact that he is in prison yet again. And this seems to be the thing that really hurts Paul the most. But there is also a beauty to this letter that we should cherish along with its tragedy. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's drinking deep from the waters of persecution. And when we consider it, there's not really a more fitting way for the Apostle Paul to go. Paul doesn't go out with great fanfare and great acclaim. We don't read of of parades in in, in the streets held in, in honor of Paul's name. He goes out in obscurity. He goes out in loneliness, in cold loneliness. And when we read this last letter of his, 
we can see that actually what he's doing at the end of his days, he wants people to remember not him, but Jesus Christ. He says later on, remember Jesus Christ. That's what he wants his people. That's what he wants the church to remember. Remember Jesus Christ. We could perhaps summarize the tone of this letter through the words of the German reformer, Nicholas Zinzendorf, who said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Aren't those wonderful words? Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. I hope my kids will remember me after I die. That'd be nice. My grandkids too, that'd be probably pleasant. Great-grandkids, sure, why not? Apart from that, I hope I'm forgotten. Like in 100 years' time, no one is going to know my name. But people will know the name of Jesus. And that's what Paul is on about here. Remember Jesus Christ. So even though Paul is in prison, he's cold and is lonely. There is beautiful liberty to the words that Paul is going to tell us. And that's what we're about to study. The reason why Paul wrote this letter was because word had actually reached him that opposition had arisen against the gospel within this church in Ephesus. His, his protege, Timothy, was the leader of this church. And so he sends this letter to Timothy to encourage Timothy in his faith. In his faith. Opposition wasn't necessarily a new thing for this particular church. If we go back and read of the church's inception in Acts, uh, we'll know that it wasn't long after people started believing the gospel that, that persecution arose because of the economic impact that the church had on some of the silver merchants of, the, of Ephesus. But this opposition, the opposition that occasioned this letter, was different. This time, the opposition to the gospel was coming from within the church's own ranks. Apparently, a group of elders had gotten together to oppose the gospel, to oppose the gospel that Paul had taught, and they were leading people astray from the gospel, away from the gospel that Paul had tirelessly taught while he was there. And so Paul, in his dying days, writes to Timothy, the leader of this church, this church that was bruised and battered from opposition, that was uh, bruised and battered from the ensuing disunity. Paul and Timothy, they had met a, few years, a number of years earlier in Lystra, Timothy had traveled with Paul to, to strengthen the churches in that area. The two of them grew close, and Timothy eventually became somewhat of a protege of Paul's. The, the bond between Paul and Timothy is deep, and we'll see that in this letter. Paul wants to fill his friend, his young friend, with the courage needed to lead this church in this difficult time. So how is he going to do that? What does Timothy need to hear to be encouraged in leading this church? The answer is that he needs to be led to and pointed back to the grace of Jesus Christ. He needs to be strengthened by grace. That's why this series is called Strengthened by Grace. The grace of Jesus will give Timothy courage. It will, the grace of Jesus Christ will give Timothy uh, instruction in the proper conduct of a leader. The grace of Jesus Christ will prevent Timothy from being drawn into the benign controversies that had plagued the church. The grace of Jesus Christ is how Paul begins this letter. The grace of Jesus Christ is how Paul ends this letter. And Paul knows that it's only the grace of Jesus Christ that can truly strengthen Timothy for the path ahead. This letter then is not only an encouragement for pastors and those in ministry, but it also highlights what ought to be the very center of the church, and that is the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
which is another way of saying that Jesus Christ should be the center of this church. There are many other things that will make fierce and valiant attempts to unseat Jesus as the center of LCC Northwex. But the grace of Jesus Christ needs to be at the center. The grace of Jesus Christ is God's unmerited favor to us. That even though we rebelled against God, even though we shake our fist at God, even though we continue to do that, even though we sin against God again and again, God, out of mercy for us, out of great compassion for us, and driven by love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we could not live, we have not lived, we will not live, to die the death that we absolutely deserve. We deserve to be incinerated. And he, he sent him to rise again, to rise again in triumph over death. And all of this, all the, the life of Jesus Christ, everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us because of the grace of God. We don't deserve that. We don't earn that. If we were to rely on our works to be able to earn that, we would lose that in a heartbeat. This, this is the grace that we're talking about. So quick question. How central is the grace of Jesus Christ to your life? How much time do you spend meditating on and thinking about and chewing on the grace of Jesus Christ in your life? Can I encourage you that time spent thinking about the grace of Jesus Christ, the unmerited favor of God towards you, is not time wasted? There are tens of thousands of ways that we can waste our time in, 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 our, in our day. There are thousands of ways at our disposal that we can waste our time thinking about the grace of God is not one of them. So let's get into the text. We're only going to be looking at seven short verses this morning, but like most of the books in the Bible, we'll find that these opening words of this letter are among them the most important in the whole book. They function kind of like a seedbed for everything else that is going to happen in the rest of the letter. They're also some of the most underrated words in the entire letter as well. We can easily find ourselves breezing past these words, trying to get to the more meatier sections as we might assume them to be. But we're actually better off to slow down for this opening, uh, opening sermon for today and understand what these words are actually saying. So I've broken these verses down into four clear and overlapping sections. So part one, the promise of the life in Jesus Christ. That's in verses one and two, the promise of the life in Jesus Christ. Part two, the faith of the ages. That's in verses two to three, the faith of the ages. Part three, <clears throat> the importance of remembering. <clears throat> That's in verses three to six. The importance of remembering. And part four, power, love, and self-control. That's from verses six and seven. Power, love, and self-control. <clears throat> so part one, the promise of the life in Jesus Christ. The letter opens with Paul telling Timothy that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So first question, if Paul and Timothy are close, if Timothy is Paul's protege, if they are like brothers in the faith, why in this very personal letter does Paul feel the need to list his credentials before Timothy? Like if I called my dad right now, and my dad, have a, dad and I have a good relationship, and if I called my dad and say, said, hi, dad, it's me, Jimmy Smith Cottrell, your son from the Sunshine Coast. 
That would be redundant. It would be superfluous. Dad would say, I know who you are, you big idiot. Like just your face comes up on my phone when you call me. You don't need to tell me who you are. Why does Paul list his credentials in front of Timothy? Like, hey, Timothy, this is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You know, why does he, why does he do that? The answer is because you and I are so prone, and Timothy are so prone to forget the love and kindness of God. The truth of who God is so rapidly and so easily leaves our minds, and we need to be reminded not just of God's love and kindness, but we need to be reminded of the source of the truth of God's love and kindness. Every now and then, our friends, we will have to say to our friends, hey, listen, I'm your friend. You need to listen to me. Like that person didn't forget that we were friends. We just had to list our credentials for a moment so they could hear that our words carry weight. In our marriage, my wife has had to say things to me in the past along the lines of, I'm your wife. You need to listen to me. My words carry weight for you right now. In response, I don't say to her, I forgot you were my wife. I don't say that. I know she's my wife, but I need to be reminded of her credentials, that her credentials carry weight. And just in case Timothy is tempted to shrug off Paul's words here, Paul is saying, hey, mate, these aren't just coming to you from a friend. These words come to you from an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Friends, the Bible contains the authoritative words of God. This is why we're studying the Bible the way we are on this Sunday morning. This is why we're picking it up and opening it and we're walking through it line by line, verse by verse, because we understand these words to be authoritative over our lives. We want to be clear that God's word is clear in our minds. His words have authority over us. Timothy needs to be clear that these words come from God. So what truth does Timothy need to hear? What is the thing that Paul needs to remind Timothy of? He says straight away, It's the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what's that? What's the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus? Well, if if you're here and you're you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, why do we think that there is life in this this person who was dead? Why does the Apostle Paul think think that there is still life in Jesus? In the Gospels, we're, we're told this story in, in John chapter 4 of this woman who, who goes to get water from a well. And while she's there, she comes across Jesus. And Jesus says these words to her. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When we follow Jesus, we are promised a life that rivals the promise of life from so many other things around us. We're told, if you have money, then you will have more life. If you have more money, then you'll have life. If your house has ocean views, then you'll have life. If you get married, then you'll have life. If you have kids, then you'll have life. If you have the perfect career, then you'll have life. If you have the perfect body, then you'll have life. If you have influence and acclaim and fame, then you'll have life. Christianity comes along, and in contrast to to all of those things, says, if you have Jesus, then you'll have life. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the logical question then is, 
Well, what makes the claim of Christianity so different to those other claims? Well, the reality is that those other things, they will never, ever satisfy us. We can drink water, but the thirst will come back again. The water that Jesus gives us, the life that Jesus gives us, satisfies us eternally. It satisfies our eternal desires. Christianity stands different from those things because Jesus can never be taken away from us. Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is the consistent one. He is the constant one. Sure, those other things are nice. They are well. They are good. But if we go to those things and if we say, yes, if I have that thing, then I have life. And if I don't get that thing, then I won't have life. Then two things will become absolutely inevitable. Firstly, we'll find that thing to be utterly disappointing. And secondly, we'll destroy that thing by trying to squeeze life out of it, life that it wasn't designed to give to us. So let's examine this in relation to a career. If you say, what I really need in life is the perfect career. That career needs to excite me. It needs to thrill me. It needs to be void of any mundane activities. It needs to pay well. I want to know that I'm making a difference. I want to be able to choose my hours. I want to, feel, I want, I want to be able to work from home. I want to be able to travel when I want to travel. I want to, want to be able to stay home when I can stay home. If you think that that's what your career should give you, then you're always going to be unsatisfied. Not just because that career is unrealistic, but because your career was never designed to give you the eternal uh, satisfaction for the eternal appetite for life that you have. Even if you did get a job that ticked all of those boxes, you'd still find yourself in want because that thing was never meant to bring you the life that you'd so crave. It never can. And by putting that kind of pressure on your career, that will destroy your career. It will destroy you. It will destroy those around you. Your employer will have this pressure now to make this life, this job, your career, your, career, your life. Your employees will have that pressure. Your workmates will have that pressure. Your neighbors, your wife, your husband, your, your friends, your children, your parents, those around you, they will have this pressure now that your career now is the thing that gives you life and they cannot intrude upon it. Because this career is meant to give you life. It will never satisfy you. And you will destroy it by going after it to give you life. The Bible calls this idolatry. And the reason why idolatry is number two on the, on the list of the Ten Commandments is not just because going after those things and getting life from those things is futile for us. It's because God deserves glory. God is the one who should be worshipped. When we, when we pursue those things, we are worshipping those things. God is the one who needs worship. God, sorry, God is the one who we need to worship. God is the one who we must worship. God is the one who deserves worship, and it is good for us to do that. Christianity teaches us that Jesus is the only thing that can truly satisfy our eternal appetites, and he can never be taken away from us. We'll never lose him. We'll never wear him out. He is the constant and consistent one. He is the only one who can handle our eternal appetite. Now, just for a moment, consider Paul's situation. He's writing this from a cold jail cell. There's only one hole in the ceiling for light and air. His friends, Figilus and Hermogenes, and so many others in Asia have all deserted him. He is, he is alone, and he hears word that the church that he planted in Ephesus might be dissolved by, by this false teaching. 
what he worked on for years was slipping away. He's facing imminent death. It might only be days away. And here is Paul saying, the only source of life is found in Jesus Christ. You see, all Paul had to do was renounce Jesus. And he could have walked. He could have gone back home to Tarsus or maybe back to Jerusalem, hung out with the Jews there. His kinsmen had a good time there. He was pretty famous there. Got a job making tents, lived a cushy life. He could have done all that stuff. All he had to do was renounce Jesus Christ. But Paul is convinced that actually, no, life is only to be found in Jesus Christ. And having Jesus and losing everything else is far better than having everything else and not having Jesus. He knows that every other path away from Jesus leads to death. He knows that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Friends, if we trust in anything other than Jesus for our life, then regardless of how nice that path is, that path leads to death. And the path that leads to Christ, even though that path is hard, that path is the path to eternal life. Why is this? Because Jesus is God. He is actually God incarnate. And our eternal appetites can only be satisfied by an eternal source. This is what Paul means in verse 2 when he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's far more than just a greeting. Paul is saying far more than just, I hope you guys are going well. It's an acknowledgement that grace and mercy and peace are only truly found in Jesus Christ. Grace is only possible because of the Father's unconditional love for us. God showed us the ultimate mercy by sending His Son for us and sparing us from God's wrath. And true peace in our life only comes when we have peace with God. There is only life to be found in Jesus Christ. So that's part one. Part two, the faith of the ages. Overlapping with this first point comes this second point, which is that the faith or the religion that Paul is teaching here is actually a continuation of and runs along with the trajectory of the faith that is and the religion of the Old Testament. So Paul says something in verse 3. Take a look at that, would you, that we might miss. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. What's Paul talking about with this ancestral faith stuff? Well, it's that when Jesus Christ came in the flesh, it wasn't something that was out of the blue and a whole new direction. He came as the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament always pointed towards. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And yet his people did not recognize him. They rejected him. They they killed him. Everything about Jesus was so offensive to the Jewish establishment of his day that anyone that was found to be following Jesus was persecuted. This is, of course, how we first meet Paul in Acts chapter 7. He was overseeing the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Known then as Saul, he persecuted the church, and he was actually on the way to a town called Damascus to bind the Christians there and drag them back to Jerusalem. Little did he know, though, that Christ would bind him and turn him into apostle. Paul now sees that actually Jesus Christ is not a divergence of what God had been doing in the old covenant, but was a continuation of it into the new covenant. 
those who would be identified as the people of God would not just be the physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We might miss this, but this was incredibly important to the Jews back then. To the Jews, Jesus was a problem, but to the Christians, Jesus was Lord. So when he says those words in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, that was scandalous. That was heresy. That's why he was in prison. But Paul is sure that Jesus is God incarnate. And Paul's role as an apostle situated him on the same trajectory of God, of God's plan since Abraham. So why is this important to us? Why is it important to us that uh, this is the faith of Paul's ancestors? It's important to us because it tells us that everything that God was doing in the Old Testament was pointing towards the day when he would eventually step into flesh and walk the earth himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This situates our faith not just as far back as 2,000 years earlier, but even beyond that. It means that when we read the Old Testament and we come across the times where Jesus is hinted at, where there's these hints of a, that a Messiah would come, we are strengthened in our faith. It means that two-thirds of our Bibles aren't irrelevant, but actually vital. We need to read the Old Testament. We will not make sense of the New Testament without understanding what the Old Testament teaches. How can we be confident and assured that God is who he says he is and that we'll be saved from our sin if we put our trust in Jesus Christ? We need to look at Jesus, who links us to and fulfills all that God has been doing throughout all of history, history to bring about a plan that would bring you and I into God's house, to receive the forgiveness of sins and life in Jesus Christ. The fact that Paul says, I trust God as in my ancestors, gives us so much assurance in our faith right now. This is what God has always been doing. <clears throat> Part three, the importance of remembering. <clears throat> in the next three verses, we see this theme of, of memory coming into clear focus. Look at all the times he talks about remembering or reminding there. Memory is a funny thing. Uh, my, my son Banjo turned five uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so we were scrolling through the old photos of him from when he was a baby, just going through old Instagram things that we had posted. Uh, and it got us thinking about how our memories are coping with our digital age, that we, we're kind of going, going back to these photos and, um, and, and the importance really of memory, like just how, how joyful it was to actually pull out these pictures and show them to the whole family. Why has God given us a memory? Why do we need to be reminded of things? What's the, what's, the, what's the point of this? Well, God has given us the faculty of memory because he wants us to remember things. Crazy, right? <laughs> like, that's bizarre, right? Our memory is so super important because it's a, it's a vital part of preaching the gospel to ourselves because it draws from past experiences of God's faithfulness to us and encourages us and, and, and that God will actually do it again. One of my favorite parts of the book of Joshua is when Israel first crosses the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. It had only been just like, you know, a few hundred years coming. God held back the waters of the Jordan River 
for Israel to be able to cross the river on, into the land of Canaan on dry ground. And after they crossed over, God instructed Joshua to send 12 men, one from every tribe of, of Israel, to go back into the dry riverbed and pick up a stone each and take that out. And they were to set, set those, those stones up as a monument to what God did there that day. And they did this because there would come a time when their kids would see these stones and they would say, Mom, Dad, what are these stones here for? Why are they here? And Mom and Dad would say, Well, dear, you're going to find this hard to believe. But actually, when we crossed over here into the land of Canaan, we, we came across on dry ground. And those stones there, you can only get those stones from the bottom of the Jordan River. And the guys who collected those stones, they collected those stones and they didn't get wet. And they brought these stones out and they put these here as a reminder to us of what God did that day. God is faithful. God has given us the faculty of memory to, to, and these things put in our mind to remind us of God's faithfulness. We should think regularly on God's past faithfulness to us. We should set up monuments in our mind, monuments in our heart that remind us of God's faithfulness. Doing this has been a, a super source of strength for Kirsty and I, particularly when we purchased the land to build a house where we would start holding church services up at Caloundra. We would ask ourselves, are we the right people to be doing this? Gosh, it's expensive if we're not. If we're wrong here, this is bad. Surely it should be somebody else. We have days even to this day where we find leading the church very, very difficult where we think to ourselves, man, we, it'd be so much easier to be doing something different. Anything would be easier than this. But then we'd remember God's faithfulness and all the things that he did to, to bring us to that point. We remember how God made a way for me to resign my previous job and actually join here at LCC Northlex and go through a church planting residency, how, how that just all came together so well. Maybe not how we planned it at the time, but exactly as we needed it. We would remember how God made, made a way for us to live very, very uh, leanly, very, very cheaply, so we could save up the deposit for the land to actually do that. We would remember how God brought people into, into our lives, people who would be faithful to us by pray, and pray for us and encourage, encourage us. People like Barn and Dan encourages, encouraging us on the way. People like Kylam and Carly praying for us and, and training us and getting us ready. People like Trev and Sel are praying for us constantly. People like Steve and Tam saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to drive up every Sunday morning for as long as it takes, and we're going to do life, kids, and creche for you guys, whatever else you need. We remember God's faithfulness to provide for us everything that we needed to plant this church. And those are the monuments in our mind that when we come across weeks like the past few months and go far out, anything else would be easier right now. We remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. And we know that God is continually faithful to us now. Friends, remember God. Remember his faithfulness towards you. So that's memories. What should we be remembering? Well, there are at least five things in this text that Paul tells us we should be remembering. Firstly, we need to remember to pray for one another. Paul says to Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. A couple of weeks ago, we were in our life group, we were studying this text and we were struck by the extent of what day and night actually entails, how long that goes for. What a privilege we have 
to come before the God of the universe on behalf of our brothers and sisters in faith, to bring their needs to God. That is a sublime privilege, friends. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Do you remember one another in your prayers? Do you remember Kylam in your prayers? Do you remember Carly in your prayers? Do you remember Christian in your prayers? He really needs it. Do you remember Donna in your prayers? Do you remember Sam in your prayers? One of the most encouraging things that happens for me on a weekly basis is we have a Wednesday morning prayer meeting at at the community hall where where we have our church. And there's Bob who comes along. Bob's 70. Uh, Bob's got some health issues, which make things like driving impossible, uh, reading very, very difficult, getting about speech, all that kind of stuff. Social interaction makes life quite difficult for him. Bob's there every Wednesday morning at 6.30. Sometimes he's walked there in the rain, and he gets there and he's ready to pray. He's always there before I am. It's because I'm often late, but he gets there. (laughs) And we sit down, and Bob opens his little prayer notepad. And he opens up every, more, every Wednesday morning. He's got prayers listed there. And there are five words written at the top of that prayer journal that just encourage me every single week. Those five words are these. Jimmy, Kirsty, Noah, Shepherd, and Banjo. He's my brother in Christ. I've only known him six months, but he's praying for me. And far out, I need Bob's prayers. And I need your prayers and you need mine. We need to be praying for one another. There is nothing, there there are not many more things more important right now than you could be doing than praying for one another. In this church, praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ constantly, day and night. Write down their names. Write down their prayer needs. Everything else that has gone, out, gone on in the world around us right now, we don't need to explain how unbelievably dividing it is right now. And I tell you what, church, if you're not praying for one another, division's going to come in and have its way. Because when we pray for one another, you can't help but love that person. This is why Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And there's a little secret in there that you can't pray for somebody for more than a minute without starting to love them. Even if you're praying for somebody who has a different opinion on the vaccine to you. Even if you're praying praying for someone who has a different opinion on COVID to you or the government or whatever it is. They might have a different opinion on on theology or whatever it is, but if you're praying for them, your heart is going to be drawn towards them in love. And we need to love one another. We are commanded to love one another. If you're trying to love one another without praying for one another, it's like driving, it's trying to drive a car without without a steering wheel or without wheels at all. We need to be praying for one another. The second thing then, we are told to remember here. And it almost goes without saying, but we'll say it because Paul does. We need to simply remember one another. 
We need to remember one another what we're each going through. Paul says, I remember your tears. I haven't forgotten your tears, mate. Beloved, do your, do your brothers and sisters in Christ in faith, do, do they occupy any real estate in your mind? Do they possess a, a precious part in your heart? Does the family of God, the people who are sitting in front of you and behind you and beside you, uh, are they in your hearts? If someone tells you on Sunday that they've had a rough week, are you storing that in your heart? If someone's telling you about their new house or their sister's surgery or their son's new job or their parents' health or their new puppy, are, are you storing that in your heart? We, we should be. You should, we should be thinking about one another through the week. Tell you what, if you're, only, if you're not thinking about anybody else, you're only thinking about yourself. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Remember one another. Thirdly, we need to remember our need for one another. Paul says, As I remember your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Now, that's a strange thing to say, but it's true. We don't know what caused Timothy's tears. I tend to think that's because he's a pastor. Paul remembers his friend's tears and he longs to see him. Not only would it bring Paul great joy, it would actually fill his joy up just to lay eyes on his friend. There's no guarantee this is going to happen though. Paul, Paul knows this. He's urging Timothy to come to me. He even says, do your best to come to me soon. Paul's death is imminent. Do you know that as Christians, we have a need to see one another? We need to be encouraged and comforted in our faith. And God uses us, his family, to administer the grace of Jesus Christ to one another. Did you know that every single time you decide to come to church, you're deciding to come and encourage your brothers and sisters in faith? It might not feel like that's what you're doing, but that's what you're doing. And every time you decide not to come to church, but rather do something for your own interest, something that will be more beneficial just to you, you're choosing the opposite. And I know that that's not a popular thing to say. And I know that it's not all about Sundays, and I'm not saying that. But we are blind if we think that there isn't a problem with the way that so many Christians are treating the gathering of God's people these days. I'm just not convinced at all that it washes with what the New Testament pictures as the gathering of the saints. We have a deep need for one another. Your faith needs the faith of your brothers and sisters around you. And this leads us on to the fourth thing that we need to remember. The faith of our brothers and sisters. Paul is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. A faith that, that Paul saw in Timothy's grandmother Lois and in his, in his mother Eunice. Now, it's important that we should just pause for a moment and just think on these two wonderful women of God, Lois and Eunice. How wonderful. How wonderful that their faith was such an important thing for Timothy's faith. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest people in history to ever live, mentions these two wonderful women. I personally have been deeply affected by the faith of my own mother. She's been an important person in my life. Without her sincere faith, I seriously doubt that I would be walking with Jesus right now. 
Timothy has these wonderful women in his life who have encouraged him in his faith. Pause for a moment. Who have been the wonderful people in your life who have encouraged you in your faith? Who have been the ones who have instructed you? Who have been the ones who encouraged you? Who have been the ones who have prayed for you? Who have helped you along? Remember them for a moment. Place them in your heart. Thank God for them. Pray for them right now. Stop listening to me for a second and talk to God for a little bit. Who are the wonderful women in your life who have done that for you? We need to pause and remember these people. Remember their faith. Because when we remember the faith of one another, it spurs on our relationship with God. This is why life groups are just so jolly important. Can I just plug that other life group that's happening on Sundays from the 8th of August? If you're not part of a life group, join one. Do it. It's important because when you go around the table and you're asking how one another's going and you pray for one another, that encourages us in our faith. We get, we get to hear how one another is doing. And when, then when you come to church on Sunday morning and you're gathering with God's people, and you know what Bill's going through, or you know what Sophie's going through, you know what's going on in their life, how, how they've just lost their parent, how, how they've just had a really horrible prognosis from the doctor, how they've just, something horrible has happened, and you look over them, at the, sitting over in that chair of there, and they're closing their eyes in worship, they're raising their hands in prayer, they've got, their, they've got God's word open, they've got a pen in their hand, they are to- taking notes, they are learning from God's word, that, that pushes us in our faith, that explodes our faith. We look across at the people who are struggling and they're worshiping God and we go, far out, what reason do I have not to praise God right now? We need one another. We need to remember one another to point us towards Jesus all the time. Fifthly, we need to remember, of course, what God has done for us. And this isn't actually in our text. I'm stealing it from uh, whoever's preaching in a couple of weeks. But Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Actually, I think Shane's preaching this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Shane will tackle that passage in a couple of weeks. But for now, we'll simply say this. Remember Jesus and what he has done for us. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. And what we're going to do is we're going to remember Jesus. We are so prone to forget what God has done. And so we need to remind ourselves all the time of who God is, what he has done for us, and therefore who we are in him. Don't forget the fact that we did nothing to earn our salvation. Don't forget that there is nothing that we can add to our salvation. Don't forget that Jesus Jesus is the one who saves us, not because of something that we have done, but because of his great love for us. Don't forget that God loves you. Don't forget that God loves you. Don't forget that God loves you. We so easily forget that Jesus Christ actually uh, came to earth as a baby, we, we tend to forget this, this important and life-changing truth that God loves us enough to send Jesus Christ to earth, to actually live on, on earth as a man where he actually died, he actually rose from the dead, and he actually ascended into heaven where he actually sits at the right hand of God, and he actually hasn't forgotten us. He stands at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, talking to God the Father about us, presenting our case before him, and, and using his blood as the evidence for our justification. He's doing that right now, this moment. What's Jesus up to right now? He's at the right hand of God, and he's talking about you, to God. 
about him. That's what Jesus is doing right now. Don't forget that. This is why God has given us a memory. (laughs) Such important things to remember all the time. Don't be distracted by what's on TV. Don't be distracted by what's on Netflix. Remember what God has done for us. Fourthly and finally, power, love, and self-control. In verse 6, and for the reasons listed, listed above, Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying, laying on of hands. For God gave us the spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This gift that Paul is talking about is probably the gift that was bestowed upon Timothy when, when Paul laid his hands on him. A kind of supernatural enabling for Timothy to do the task of pastoral ministry that was at hand. Timothy was facing a really difficult time. Not only did he have to counter the false teaching that was rising up in the church, but he also had to do it in such a way that gave glory to God. He needed to resist the temptation to enter into useless quarrels and meaningless arguments about insignificant things. He had a church to lead. His task was not an easy one. I don't mind saying that pastoral ministry is not an easy task. So what, what is this gift that Timothy must fan into flame? This gift is the gift of the Spirit, which was given to Timothy, which is to act not in fear, but to function out of power and function out of love and function out of self-control. This verse has meant a lot to me over the past couple of months. There's a printout of it hanging right next to my desk, and I see it every day. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we believe the gospel, we are given the gift of the Spirit so that we can live not in fear, but so that we can live in power, so that we can live in love, so we can live in self-control. The Spirit gives us power, which is the enablement to do the very things that He has called us to do. We don't shrink and cower. We stand in power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us love, and that love keeps that power in check and prevents us from steamrolling one another. And the Spirit gives us self-control so that we can practice and put into place those things which God has called us to go out and call others to do. Though written for Timothy, this letter here is for our edification. We are the recipients of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's fan into flame the wonderful gift of the grace of God given to us by the Holy Spirit. Let's remember what God has done for us. And may we know that the only place that we can find our life is in the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 